Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Greg, you did it again. Did what? Oh, you know what. We had that cake out on the table there. You finished it, except for this tiny little token piece, and then you left the big old cake plate sitting there covered with crumbs and frosting. You know how much I hate that. Why did you do that? I'm not sure. In some way, it's the product of a neural mechanism that involves cells and chemicals interlocked in a process that amounts to causality. Say what? I'm an eliminative materialist. I believe there is a purely physical explanation for everything you call mind or self. Your implication that I ate the cake and then failed to wash the dish because I'm this identifiable person with deeply flawed character traits is the product of primitive folk psychology, as laughable to me as the ancient Greek notion that all temperaments were based on four body fluids. Huh. You know, that is fascinating stuff. It helps me really understand why I'm going to do this. Ow! That really hurt! Yeah, by breaking a plate over your head, I'm introducing a whole new sensory pattern to your cells and chemicals. I'm awakening, in this essentially mechanistic model, new patterns of electrical transfer that'll prevent you from doing this in the future. You know, mm, there's quite a bit of frosting left on these sharp pieces. Today on the show, what is the human self? Is it just the wet tissue of the brain? We should be able to wrap that up in about 15 minutes and then spend the rest of our talking about the baseball playoffs. And now he asks the question, if there's a spiritual dimension to the mind, how do you explain the Three Stooges? Colin McEnroe. Yeah, I think there is a purely neurochemical explanation for the the Three Stooges. Even if you don't accept that about the human race in general, I think they can be at least boiled down uh, to uh, to sheer biological uh, interplays. All right, so this is uh, that's all we're doing today on this show is tackling a question which has preoccupied philosophy for thousands of years. Um so yeah, I don't even think we'll need the whole hour, actually. Uh, we are going to talk today about the question. And it's, it's although it, it, you could sort of say it's an old question, it's also a very new question because everything that goes on in neuroscience tends to refresh the question and, and new thinkers come into the field uh, that tend to refresh the question. But I think I'm stating the question correctly when I say that it was pretty well summarized in, in that opening bit, which... I wrote, so I should know, Uh, which is, is what we call the self, the soul, uh, consciousness, the mind, are those all words for what is essentially a biological process, Uh, an interaction of cells, chemicals, uh, things that um, if we don't understand why they add up to consciousness, it's simply because we don't understand it. It's not because it's not the case. Um, Or... The alternative, of course, is is there something else? Is there something that amounts to consciousness, something that amounts to the mind that doesn't have a purely physical explanation? Um, so um, first of all, let me just tell you who's on the show today. Patricia Churchland is the author of uh, many books, including Touching a Nerve, The Self as Brain. She's a philosopher and neuroscientist uh, known for her contributions to this field, uh, and uh, she's also the UC President's Professor of Philosophy Emeritus at the University of California, San Diego. Uh, In studio with me uh, is Dan Lloyd, a professor of philosophy at Trinity College. We would not have done—I would not consider doing this show without Dan Lloyd. I mean, that's a sort of— 
He's our go-to guy about this. Uh, he focuses on using neuroscience to understand human consciousness. His most recent publication is entitled Subjective Time, the Philosophy, Psychology, and Neuroscience of Temporality. Um, and I think I'm sure you can get that on Amazon right now. You probably want to. Uh, in a little while, because we really do want to talk to somebody about this who has a purely spiritual take on this, or almost purely spiritual take. We will talk to Neil Donald Walsh. He's a modern-day spiritual leader and writer, uh, best known for his New York Times bestselling Conversations with God. We'll see whether uh, there's anything that he and Dan and Patricia can find common ground about. I have a funny feeling, maybe not, but we'll we'll see. Um, so even before I b- bring Patricia Churchland, who's a, a very very exciting force in this field, uh, on board, Dan, I'm, I'm going to have you kind of get us started. And in my own fumbling, stumbling way, I, I tried to at least state the question: Is that kind of the question as you understand it? Well, that's the start of the questions. Yes, absolutely. It's been the question for a long time. It got pushed hard by Descartes. I mean, it became much more of a problem uh, with Descartes. And then uh, both the rise of cognitive science, but especially neuroscience, has uh, has really made it plausible to answer your question. Yes, the soul-self-mind is a biological process. And in fact, uh, what else could it be? It becomes uh, the, the burden of proof shifts. It's not so much the huge mystery that science cannot tackle, but uh, sort of what is left over that science can't tackle. What is there left to be explained at this point? Well, and uh, Patricia Churchland will be a vital force to introduce to this question, but let me just sort of set, set it up. I, I mean, one possible answer would be everything um, in the sense that, uh, you know, we can uh, – w- one thing that gets brought up a lot, for example, is Thomas Nagel's famous essay, What It Means to Be a Bat or What It's Like to Be a Bat or whatever it's called. And basically in that he argues we can explain – we could ultimately explain and are probably close to explaining just about everything that a bat is, you know. I mean how – you know, what, what it's made out of, how it's limbs work, uh, you know, why it hangs upside down, as many things as there, there you can think of about bats. We are capable of explaining that. The thing – but when it comes to the question of what it's like for a bat to be a bat, what a bat's consciousness of its world is, we can't even get the door open. Uh, I mean, there's sort of really almost no way to even talk about that given our, our vocabulary. And even if we had the vocabulary, still no way to know about it. The consciousness is so incredibly secretive in that sense that we know effectively nothing about that. So how do you respond to that? Well, I think that it sets up a kind of dichotomy that maybe isn't exactly the you don't need to be an either or on this because, for example, you don't know what it's like to be me and I don't know what it's like to be you. How do we resolve that? I talk to you. Mm-hmm. I find out how things appear from your point of view. And you can't exactly have a conversation with a bat, but you can actually a- answer lots of questions about how things appear from the bat's point of view. Um, if it's that kind of bat that uses echolocation, how that's like seeing but unlike seeing. And you go down that path and uh, after years and years of going batty, you can actually begin to uh, begin to say, oh, it's like this to be a bat, and you can object when people say, no, it's like that. I mean, there's, there's ground for um, resolving that problem. All right. Uh, I'm not sure I believe that or agree with that, but uh, that's what makes this an interesting topic. Let's add to this conversation Patricia Churchland. Uh, as I say, her new book is called Touching a Nerve, the Self as Brain. I just want to say, as abstruse as this conversation may get, although I hope it won't, um, this is a wonderfully readable book. I mean, you don't have to be a philosopher or a neuroscientist uh, to read and, and, and partake uh, um, of Patricia Churchland's arguments. So, so don't be scared. Uh, Patricia Churchland, welcome to our show. 
Well, good morning from California. It's uh, great to be on the show. Of course, I do realize it's after lunch for you. Right. You only think it's great because there are are neurochemicals bathing your brain right now um, telling you that uh, it's great here. Um, So uh, talk about this argument that that you make a little bit. I mean, you, you you do represent a pretty... I don't know, extreme is probably the wrong word, but but a pretty forceful proposition of what Dan Lloyd also just said, that, that, that the burden of proof is on anybody who doesn't think there's a purely physical and biological explanation for consciousness. Well, I don't worry too much about putting the burden of proof anywhere. I think what is quite fascinating is the fact that there are... So many lines of evidence pointing to the fact that the brain and the brain is changed in a very specific way, our consciousness changes in a very specific way. So we know that, for example, if you're about to undergo surgery, that uh, certain kinds of anesthetics will obliterate your consciousness. And we don't know in detail how that happens for any um, anesthetic, but we actually do know a fair bit about it. Um, it's also the case that something that everybody is really, really familiar with, and that is falling asleep, <clears throat> excuse me, being in deep sleep, where you're really not aware of your surroundings, not even aware of your internal goings-on, such as whether you're hungry or whether you're lying on your side or your back and so forth. Um, and so consciousness seems to disappear or is to be turned off during deep sleep. So one question would be, can we discover what's different about the brain when we're awake versus when we're dreaming versus when we're in deep sleep? Now, there are many lines of evidence regarding consciousness that make us think that at bottom, it really is a neurobiological phenomenon, and that uh, puzzling though it may seem to be, that the fact that we can, for example, use a tiny bit of electrical current and touch the brain in a very specific place, and you will have very specific feelings. And Joseph Parvizzi recently did that with subjects who were about to undergo surgery for epilepsy. And he found that touching them in a very specific place in their frontal cortex aroused in them a a very specific consciousness uh, sensation of determination and gathering muster to meet an obstacle. You turn off the current, it's gone. You turn it on, it comes back. And, yeah, it, it makes us think that it's a plausible hypothesis that... The brain is the organ that is causing and producing these events. Um, let me, I guess it's my job, at least for the first uh, segment here, to be uh, Descartes' advocate uh, instead of a devil's okay. advocate. So, um, uh, Patricia, um, hold your thought for a second. I'm going to ask Dan this question, but I think both of you are going to want to respond to it. So there's this this thing that people say, and it's probably kind of an urban folktale, but there's some level of truth to it, you know, that all of the atoms in our body turn over every seven years or something like that. I mean, and actually, I think probably there's no way to know that because you really can't track individual atoms. But but we 
know what people mean by that anyway, that our bodies, our brains, everything about our organic nature fundamentally changes drastically over the period of a 70, 80 year life. So, so Dan Lloyd, one argument that people would then make is, so there must be some other central organizing principle, because in fact, uh, when I go to sleep and wake up the next day, I'm still the same person. I think I'm still the same person as I was 10 or 20 years ago, given a change uh, uh, or, or give or take a, a change or two. Uh, there must be some telos or there must be some organizing force in our lives that goes beyond simple molecular structure and physical activity in the brain. What's, how do you, Dan Lloyd, respond to that? Well, I think, and I'm very influenced by uh, Professor Churchland in this regard, that um, that there are things that are preserved, and they are things that we would describe as memories and intentions and goals, and they survive the swapping out of the components. Um, and, in fact, we're evolved for exactly that, that, uh, that there will be a continuity there um, that is us, and that is a continuity uh, over time. Now, if all of our memories, if all of our thoughts, if everything that we consider psychological changed every morning, then I think it would be a much tougher case to make. It's sort of the problem that reincarnation faces. How can I be the same person when I'm reincarnated from, uh, from another animal, say, in the past? Where's that continuity? But in, us, in our case, morning to morning, um, there's plenty that's continuous. Patricia Churchland, did you want to build on that? Uh, that that is something I would essentially agree with, and and I have a slightly additional take on it, which is, if that's a problem for human brains, notice that it's also a problem for rat brains and mice brains and lizard brains and so forth. And pretty soon the spirit world gets to be uh, rather heavily populated if you think you need spirits in order to account for that. And I guess the other... The other sort of thing I would reflect on in in this regard is that it's not clear how a spirit's supposed to do this. Um, I mean, bear in mind that if you lose certain parts of the brain that are responsible for memories of a kind, um, as, for example, in dementing diseases, so you lose the neurons and their connections, those memories don't exist anymore. So what's the spirit doing anyway in the case of Alzheimer's patients? Is it kind of housing those memories but kind of not? Or what's the story? And the most plausible story at this point, although of course science is always open to revision, the most plausible story is that memories are literally stored in the neurons and in their patterns of connectivity. And when you lose that, the memories are gone. And so with other aspects of mental functioning and so on, we know that um, with certain kinds of lesions, you will lose certain functions. And some of those functions involve consciousness. And certain very specific kinds of lesions will result in permanent coma. Um, I have so many places I want to go with all that. Um, I would say, first of all, the word spirit, though, is such a loaded term. Uh, and I guess we will be getting heavily into spirit in some of this, um, the subsequent segments. Um, although, you know, just sort of almost to, to, the, um, to the philosophical side of this and even the observational side, I, I just, 
You know, I think there are probably people listening, Patricia Churchland, who would say, wow, my parent, my mother or my father had Alzheimer's disease or some other kind of uh, uh, of deterioration uh, that amounted to dementia. And what it seemed to me was, yes, there was a running down of the machine of the brain. But on the other, other hand, what I saw was the disappearance of certain brain functions or the vici- vitiation of certain brain functions until the only thing I really could see was the still left. The last thing to go, the last light to blink out was something I would call my mother's self or my father's self. I could still identifiably until the very end, you know, even when memory wasn't working so well and even spatial recognition functions weren't weren't so great. I could still see this person that I knew and recognized. That was the last thing to go, not the first thing to go. How, how would you react to that? Well, what we do tend to see with Alzheimer's patients in very advanced stages is that there is a tremendous loss of sense of self in the sense that they don't have any autobiographical memory. They've often lost the capacity to recognize family and friends, Um, certain basic responses um, that you may project yourself into uh, might still persist, but... But really, once people have lost all of that as well as the sense of space, where they are and when they are, um, inanition, as we say, sets in. They, they tend to not move, and, and death is not far behind. Of course, with people that are familiar to us in their physical aspect and people who are very dear to us are, are cases where it's overwhelmingly um, necessary almost, but overwhelmingly likely that we project our, our past understanding into what we see. I mean, these are very, very difficult times for people to face, and I face them too, so I understand. Um, but, uh, but the sense of self, a robust sense of self, with certain goals and ideas, with with an autobiographical memory, with a capacity to find things funny, certain things funny, those really are gone. And when you look at the brain itself after in in post mortem, you you see these massive holes, and you come to understand the dependency between mental functions and a well functioning brain. Um. Let's talk about, uh, and I'll start with you, Dan Lloyd. Let's talk about um, something that's sometimes called the hard problem, which I will now charmingly misstate. Um, But uh, this arises at least partly out of the work of David Chalmers. And so the way I understand the hard problem, and you can then give me my Trinity College grade for this, is that we can understand a lot of things, but we really can't understand experience. In other words, if I I look at a blue ball and I experience it, uh, I experience the color blue in my brain, uh, I I have an experience of it that can't necessarily be quantified, can't, uh, can't actually be boiled down to numbers and cells and chemicals. I, I feel pain. You know, what is that? I mean, you can sort of come up with some physical explanations for it, but but at a certain point, it, it, the conversation breaks down, much like Nagel and his bat. Um, so, um, so if that's the case, if there are still things that cannot possibly be explained in, in, as a machine, as a machine that's sort of processing a, a lot of information, if experience is different than the process of information, that's a hard problem. Um, now, 
state it more accurately than I just did. Uh, that was just fine. In fact, <laughs> it's probably stated as well as anybody has ever been able to state it. Um, there's a difference between a hard problem and mm. the hard problem. Um, there are plenty of separate hard problems, and uh, as I think Pat's book makes playing as well as I think everyone grants, there's a lot that's not understood uh, about the way the brain works and the way the brain supports or sustains or is the embodiment of our experience. Um, and so I think then it's, um, it is to overstate the existence of lots of hard problems to bundle them up and say, well, that's the hard problem. Is there always will be a residual that isn't explained and to turn that into a philosophical principle is, uh, well, is overreacting, I think, to say the least. You know, Chalmers I, is the one who gets the low grade, yeah. I think. Okay, now I have to be David Chalmers oh, advocate, not Descartes. Um, so, Patricia, Patricia Churchland, let's sort of back up to what you were saying before, and I'll, I will be David Chalmers advocate. Uh, when he hears Patricia Churchland say, spirit, he, he probably thinks, well, spirit, that's kind of cheating. That's not really fair. What I'm really saying, I, David Ch- Chalmers, I'm really saying is if ultimately we can't quantify certain aspects of what we call experience, maybe those things— that that we can't quantify exist more like a, a kind of primitive field somewhere in the universe. Well, there it's closer to things like mass and time and and all that Einsteinian stuff. That that really you know there's there's something else that resists the kind of mechanistic mechanistic quantification that you're talking about. And to call it spirit is, is to load it up with too much religious baggage. But uh, on the other hand, one of the things we know in the Einsteinian age is that there are sort of forces in the universe. That, that have to be deduced as opposed to being observed? Well, uh, first of all, let me just make an observation, and that is that um, when Chalmers and Nagel and other people say that we can't ever, ever explain consciousness in neurobiological terms, that it's absolutely impossible, notice that they're making a prediction, a prediction about what science can and can't do. And when you look closely at the basis for prediction, what you find is not very much. What you find is that they want to emphasize the differences between a neuron that you might observe in your foot and the feeling of pain. Now, of course, we all agree that there are differences, but how do you know that those differences are such as to elude science Forever. I mean, forever is quite a long time. And here's one thing that makes me a little bit cautious about that approach, and that is that um, in the history of science, there have been many things that have been very puzzling. The nature of life, for example. And it was long thought, well into the early part of the 20th century, that you could never ever explain how you could get livingness itself out of dead molecules. And so people argued that there was a special non-physical thing, the vital force, Elon Vital with its David Frutch, and that only if something had a, a vital force could it actually be alive. Now, as we know, of course, science went on. 
And science didn't sort of um, kick over that idea with one brilliant experiment. It was a million wonderful small experiments that slowly in a kind of a juggernaut style made that hypothesis of vital force as the nature of livingness seem terribly improbable. Now, to come forward then to think about consciousness, there's two things to remember. And one is that neuroscience is a very young science. And it's a very young science because neurons are really, really tiny. And you need to understand electricity and to have electrical tools in order to figure out how they function. And that's only happened fairly recently. It depends on a mature physics and a mature chemistry. So neuroscience is very young. And um, the second thing that I think is important, and Eric Kandel actually is one of the people who, who kind of reminded me of this, and I really appreciate it. And he said, look, you know, a lot of progress has actually been made on the problem. We do understand quite a bit about what happens in the brain when you lose consciousness during deep sleep or during anesthetic or why it is, what's different in the brain when you're paying attention to this and not that. And um, what it is that happens in the early part of the brain that requires the front part of the brain in order uh, for you to be conscious. So we've actually made non-trivial progress on the problem. And the third thing I think that, that bothers me about this is that the claim is that, you know, physics is really weird, consciousness is really weird, maybe it's the same problem. And, you know, scientifically, that doesn't actually have much bite. And physicists, by and large, are not terribly impressed by the idea that we need a totally new physics, we need a revolution in physics in order to explain consciousness. Many of them are going to say, well, you know, they scratch your head, and they say, well, you know, I mean, what kind of new physics is this going to well, be? I mean, me... is it going to change how we build bridges? Mm. Is it going to change how how we think about the internal structure of an atom? Well, Chalmers has nothing very specific here to say. Although, let, let me stop you there because I think this is this this is this is a worthwhile place to stop for a second because one possible okay. response to this is because uh, as you were talking. I was kind of thinking the same way that you were, but in a different way. So, you know, oh, okay. we, we had physics in the time of Newton. So the, the notion of, of the growth of knowledge would be that, that uh, you know, that everything would just become a lot more specifically Newtonian. We just know more and more kind of Newtonian things about physics and, and about how the universe works. Um, and, you know, so it, it, and the analogy I'm making is to the neurochemistry of the brain, that if, in fact, the neurochemistry of the brain is it, if that's the way that we're going to understand everything, Everything, this you know, physicalist way of understanding stuff, we're just going to know it more and more and better and better. And and, and you're right, Patricia Churchill. And just it's just a matter of crossing some of those thresholds, some of those boundaries, and I then we will understand. That. Well, no, no, no. Okay. That, that is a real misreading of of the history of science. It's not that I think it's just, neuroscience will be just more of the same. I think there will be real surprises as we move forward in neuroscience. What I think is unlikely, or at least I don't see as very productive, is the idea that 
we need a revolution in physics, and we need that revolution because only with a revolution in physics, not a revolution in neuroscience. He doesn't ask for that. He's asking for a revolution in physics, right, that has to do with fundamental features of the universe. And that's a very different thing. So I don't for a moment think that neuroscience is not going to have its own kind of revolutions. And indeed, in the last decade, we've seen great surprises. But Dan Lloyd, what I would say, more of the same. but Dan Lloyd, what I would say to that is, we already had a revolution in physics, right? We're not living with a strictly Newtonian model anywhere, we, anyway, anymore. We had an Einsteinian revolution. We have purely astro, purely theoretical, non-observable astrophysical entities that exist now. You know that are that are, are are understandable given certain kinds of principles, but maybe not principles that that Newton would easily recognize. So you know, if that's the case. I sound like I just dropped acid or something. But, um, you know, but but if that's the case, if in fact you know what happened over the course of a hundred years or so, or one hundred fifty years or so, was that we really completely reconfigured our understanding of the universe, that argues anyway that that things become knowable in radically different ways. Which Patricia Churchill just said she accepts that, but not radically unknowable ways that involve consciousness existing in some non-physical state. I'm going to let Dan, uh, I'm just going to let Dan respond to that for a second. Well, very briefly, uh, that, sure, there, I think physics is going to need some total transformations, but consciousness is a very specific thing, and there's work to be done there. And so if dark matter, uh, so suppose there's an, uh, a whole new form of energy that's developed, yeah, but it's still got to explain how it is that I can see a cup of coffee in front of me. And, uh, and so that's... Uh, it's so in any physical theory, I guess you would think applies to absolutely everything in the universe, and it applies indifferently to everything in the universe. But we are very specific uh, and very functional and very intricate organisms, and dark matter and us, we sort of don't have too much in common. Hey, Patricia Churchland, I know you wanted to respond to that too. Well, um, I'm not quite sure how you think about what changed as a result of Einstein, but it wasn't that new forces were entered into the picture, right? This had to do with ways of thinking about space-time and uh, about thinking about the nature of the effects of large gravitational fields on warping space. And... uh, so we expect, of course, in, in the development of any science that there are going to be changes. But here, here's kind of my, my problem with it, is that with, with Chalmers' proposal, is that in these debates, one really has, you, you want to make a sort of bet with regard to which proposal looks most rewarding and most productive. And Chalmers' idea is that there is a track that is the brain activity, and then there is a parallel, non-interacting track that are the conscious experiences. Now, Leibniz in the 18th century thought that, too. And Leibniz was asked, so how do you keep the tracks in synchrony? How is it that when you uh, burn me on my hand, I feel pain? Or how is it that when Parvizzi stimulates the brain and then stops, the conscious experience comes on and then stops? And what Leibniz said was, oh, well, God keeps the two tracks in pre-established harmony. So he basically said it's magic. Now, 
Uh, I think that it's possible that there are the two tracks that Chalmers suggests, in which case I would like to see a scientific program that really explores that. I would like to see him do more than just say it's not a brain process. It can't be identical to anything in the brain. It's a separate track. Okay, go with that. Develop a hypothesis. Develop experimental procedures. Show me the anomalies that require a new physics. In the case of of Einstein or in the case of quantum mechanics, there were very specific anomalies that we couldn't explain within the old framework. So what is the anomaly here? And so far... Chalmers has not really got anything to say, either with regard to the anomaly or with regard to developing a positive program. Now, maybe he will. Um, But for my money, if I'm a betting person, I'm more likely to bet on the science that already has the results than on on a, a, a project that is just maybe, maybe, maybe. All right, we're going to take a little break here. Uh, we're talking to Patricia Churchland. Her book is Touching a Nerve, The Self as Brain. Dan Lloyd is with us, professor of philosophy at Trinity College, our go-to guy about consciousness. When we get back, we'll have a conversation about the spiritual end of this. Uh, somebody to take Leibniz's uh, part of this argument. Most voluntary movements that coordinate consciousness, thought pattern, creativity, living computer that grants us stability, part of the central nervous system... All right. We're having a conversation here uh, with uh, Dan Lloyd, professor of philosophy at Trinity College, Patricia Churchland, uh, professor emeritus uh, at uh, University of California, San Diego. Her new book is called Touching a Nerve, the Self as Brain. So as we were talking about this, I really, first of all, have to give a great shout out to Josh Nalea, a very uh, exciting young man we have working here these days with us uh, as an intern. And he's uh, he does amazing stuff. And he put together this show as we were talking to Josh. I said, well, you know, we could have this conversation at the Patricia Churchland level, at the Dan Lloyd level, but it seems as though we should talk to somebody whose worldview kind of gets excluded by this, right? (laughs) And there are a lot of those people. There are just a lot of people who, you know, who not only want to embrace something like the David Chalmers point of view, but want more than that, who really want to believe that there is something called a soul that it, and that it's not quantifiable uh, by by uh, by biology, uh, by biochemistry, by neurochemistry, by neuroscience. There's something more than that. Uh, so well, let's hear from that precinct right now. Joining us right now is Neil Donald Walsh. He's a modern day spiritual leader, best known for the New York Times bestselling Conversations with God series. He's also the, fo- the founder of Recreation, a nonprofit which sponsors programs for personal and spiritual growth. So, Neil Donald Walsh, I gather you haven't been able to hear uh, a big chunk uh, of the conversation that's just gone on. But, you know, we've been sort of talking about this notion that we live in a very scientific world these days and that so many things that go on in the brain are explicable uh, by neurophysiology, that the burden would lie on on anybody who, who thought there was something more than that, that we are essentially... We are the, the, the wet tissue that exists in our brains. That's what our mind is. It doesn't come from somewhere else, and it doesn't persist after we die. Uh, is there any way for you to talk about that except at the level uh, uh, of proclamation of what you believe? No. And I don't know that there's any way for anyone to talk about anything except at the level of proclamation of what they believe. The question is what causes them to believe what they believe. I've, I listened to a good portion of uh, Dr. Churchland's uh, um, 
point of view, and I've got to tell you, hearing that conversation between all of you, I'm, I'm, I'm very clear that I'm way above my pay grade. <laughs> well, I don't think that. I don't think that's the case at all. Um, but, and, but, but, yeah, I, but I would, I would say this: the, 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 the real question is, what causes people to believe what they believe? What causes people to hold as true what they hold as true? Some people only hold as true what they find provable physically, and that's perfectly legitimate point of view. And some people hold as true, or if you wish, believe things that they don't need to have proven physically in order to believe them, and they believe them fervently. And, and, and f- furthermore, some of those people would actually uh, cite evidence in the physical world in terms of outcomes and so forth. I, I think uh, specifically about the outcome of, of a thing called prayer. There are millions of people, uh, arguably billions of people actually, who would attest to their observation, their actual real-world experience and evidence of the efficacy of prayer. That is, they pray for something and it happens. So, and there are there are many, many people, millions of people, who would attest to the uh, uh, um, presence uh, or the experience of what we call loosely miracles in the human experience. So, and there's no no way to evidence that. There's no way to prove that uh, using the physical sciences. But one simply no- notices anecdotally that from the beginning of recorded history, virtually, we've had human beings talking in those terms, which has to raise the question, even in the scientific mind, where would that come from? That is, why would they be talking that way? That is, what produced what they call miracles? What is, what, what is the generating energy or influence or, you know, what is the, what is the basis? What is the, what is the foundation of these experiences well, let me see that if I can... people all over the world insist that they're having and have, have insisted that they're having from as I said, just about the beginning of recorded history. Well, let me see if I can restructure that so that um, philosophers, if not neuroscientists, can respond to this. Fortunately, we have people here who can, uh, I think, switch hats a little bit here. So, Patricia Churchland, let me kind of rephrase this, too, and, and tell you, ask you to put on your philosopher hat and, and, and set aside your neuroscientist hat, assuming you even acknowledge that dichotomy <laughs> for a second here. And, and so, you know, what we could, another way we could boil this question down is say, all right, well, neurochemistry is causality, right? So, so neurochemistry causes um, the, all the things that we do. So one question, and I guess I'm going to ask you whether you think this is an interesting question, is what causes neuro- neurochemistry? Uh, either it's a happy accident as a result of, you know, X million years of evolution. I mean, is it an inter- interesting question to you, what causes neurochemistry? May, may I, may well, I let, me, let me just let, let her answer first. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's a little bit of a simplification to say that neurochemistry causes it all, but because the chemicals need to act on neurons and neurons need to act together to produce an effect. But but the basic point is that, that nervous systems are the product of evolution. And we can see in evolutionary development um, various branches um, that shows that actually many structures are highly conserved uh, across mammals and that a rat brain is, is actually structured very, very, very similarly to a human brain. Now, of course, our, our brain is a little bit larger. Um, but on the issue of, of spirituality, I, mean, I think there really are interesting questions here because uh, one of the things I'm, I'm very interested in are the effects of meditation, and, and that's probably not unrelated, I think, to the effects of prayer. 
um, on peace of mind and contentment and the emotions and the capacity to um, to sort of deal more effectively and more more mindfully with the catastrophes that happen during one's life. And and the neuroscientific work on this, I think it's very interesting. And, and it does show that there are certain changes that go on in the brain that correlate very well with training in meditative techniques. And at the behavioral level, we also see changes um, in people's capacity to sit still, to enjoy themselves, to be content, um, and to be less stressed, to be more relaxed. And I think those, those effects are real. And for many cultures that don't have um, a divine person as a god, such as, as Confucianism does not, Buddhism does not, um, meditative techniques are very old and and very useful, and so I think that is a domain. You might call it spirituality, or it doesn't really matter to me, but I think it is a very, very interesting topic of study. All right, we're going to have to take another quick break here because I screwed up the clock and let the first segment go on too long. We're going to come back and wrap this conversation up in just a second. Hey, Kion, this is my baby daughter, Georgia. Isn't she wonderful? Please, you just think that because of biochemical interactions in your brain, which are currently bathed in the hormone oxytocin. If we subtly altered the structure of your brain, you would totally lose interest in her. They've proven this in prairie voles. Okay, moving on down the hall now. (laughs) Today's show was produced by Josh Nalea, Betsy Kaplan, and me. Our other interns are Nia Taylor and Colleen Mason. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Katie Tolarski is the executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by B.F. Skinner. For show pages, articles, and the Faith Middleton Show staff's recipes for Descartes' brain with truffle oil, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, we wonder if it's okay for a middle school principal to make slasher movies. Or is there any real difference between the two jobs? And now, back to Colin. All right, there's so much to say. By the way, uh, Greg Hill's wonderful, beautiful daughter, Georgia, who was supposed to be named Bitsy Kion, I don't know what happened, What is in the building, was in the building. That was really her. She is wonderful and adorable and cute. And we made her make noises for us. Anyway, so... um, so there's so many places I want to go here and, and uh, so little time. So, Dan Lloyd, uh, you're sitting here in studio with me. Uh, here, here's a place where I think the three of you can can have a conversation. Um, and that is, OK, so let's let's grant this fundamentally kind of mechanistic or neuroscientific um, uh, view of consciousness and mind um, uh, at the level of moral philosophy and legal philosophy that brings up all kinds of possibilities. Like if, in fact, the mind is the whole, if the brain is the whole thing and people are causing trouble, people are being evil, people are, then why not just alter their brains? You know, if we, if we can begin to figure out what causes a mass murder or what makes somebody violent, what makes somebody sociopathic or difficult, you know, if it's all in their brain and we can begin uh, moderating the brain and we don't assign to 
the human self any particular status other than its purely biological one? Why don't we just mess with people at their bio- biological level until we can get them to do what we think is good and orderly for society? Okay. Well, I think I'd, I'd go back to Pat Churchland's uh, comment that neurochemistry is to over to say it's all neurochemistry is in a way to leave out, we might say, levels of complexity that are really important here. We mess with our brains all the time. That's what learning is. That's and, what and drinking. Yes, exactly. And so, um, and so there's so to say, let's do that is of course what being human is. We are changing ourselves all the time, and and it's certainly when we have uh, individuals who are either ill or are um, sociopathic or something, it is in society's interest to somehow help them change. And um, and so I think the. Anything goes in that regard, not in the sense of, I'm not talking about legalities or, or rights, but just that one should be discussing uh, every every different kind of, uh, of uh, ways in which people can actually responsibly and with self-awareness change themselves. So, so, um, so now after that unfolds a huge uh, toolbox of possibilities at this point, um, many of which are not well understood. But I think you're right. There is a, uh, um, it's, it, it is in a proliferating zone of debate right now, and where it's going to land is um, hard to predict. Um, I'll, I'm going to let Neil Donald Walsh go third on this, because. Uh, but Patricia Churchland, as you hear that question, I mean, obviously something comes up. It comes up in your work too. You know, we there are observable things that as we begin to do uh, uh, MR cranial MRIs of people who exhibit certain kinds of behavior, the more and more we know, we do know that there are things about the brain that are associated with undesirable behavior. But we have this kind of embedded philosophical notion of self too that you know that we don't necessarily have the right to go in there with a laser and not that stuff out. So um, I, I don't know. How do you balance those two things? Well, the social issues are really, really complex. And the fact is that in neuroscience at this stage, we don't know anything like enough um, to do very much by way of intervention. The thing that we probably do know, but this is not new, is that nurturing children and giving them love and not neglecting them and not abusing them is one of the most crucial things that you can do in order to uh, allow that child to develop normally and to have a normal social life. Um, What is known, I think, is that there is really significant damage caused by early neglect and early abuse and that it, it results actually in changes in gene expression. And that means that, that there's going to be a change in, in particular things in the brain, change in receptors for oxytocin, for example, that will have a big effect on how that person uh, is able to behave as an adult. But that's really old, old news. We've known humans have, as dogs do since ever, that uh, love and nurturing of the young is really, really important. All right. I just want to. I don't want to break your train of thought. On the other hand, we're almost out of time, and I did want to get uh, one more response from Neil Donald Walsh about this. Neil Donald Walsh, uh, as a religious person, as a spiritual writer, is any of this interesting to you? I mean, one of the things you deal with in your work is the the problem of evil, right? If if God is good and the and He creates a good universe, why does bad stuff happen? Why do people uh, act so horribly, uh, quite so frequently? Um, th- does the 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 biological part of this intrigue you at all? 
Of course it does. How could it not? It's an essential and, and uh, an incredible part of life. It's, surely it intrigues me. But there's a larger question, I think, if I could briefly state it, that's even more intriguing to my mind. The question ultimately is, who are we? Every human being has to ultimately decide, are we simply a biological creature, no different from a dolphin or a whale or an ant, except for the level of our complexity and sophistication? Or is it possible that we're something larger than that, that we are made up of not just body and mind, but body, mind, and soul, if you will? Is that even a possibility? Is it possible that there's something we don't fully understand here about life and about God, the understanding of which would change everything? Or as Shakespeare put it, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Um, I mean, I think that's a very eloquent statement of it. Um, what would you say to the person who said, well, no, actually, uh, Neil, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with scenario A, you know, that, that really we are simply extensions of the, of the other life forms that you talked about. We're, we're just, you know, a few gradients away from, from those life forms. What would you say back? Wonderful. If that makes you comfortable and you feel happy with that and your life is working for you, by golly, I wouldn't even begin to try to change your mind about that. I've made it very clear from the beginning of my 27 books that I have no intention of trying to change anyone's mind about anything, but merely to offer an, an additional possibility for those who find that our current explanations of life are simply not working for them and to give them an, addition, an additional resource, which many find, it, it's in, indisputable, that many find this additional resource that I call spirituality, in fact, does make people's life work for them. And talk about changing behaviors. I know of no single element in philosophy or psychology that can change a person's behaviors faster than an awareness of their own spiritual truth and a connection with their idea, if they even have one, of God. All right. And, and you know, maybe the point of re- reconciliation, if there is any point of reconciliation, is what Patricia Churchland was talking about before, where there are these practices that, that she acknowledges, too, the med- meditative practices um, that do seem anyway to kind of open us up, maybe maybe at the uh, neuroscientific level, maybe at some other level, too, uh, to, to other possibilities and to other states of mind anyway. Um, we're going to stop here. I could go on for hours, but that's a very dangerous thing. I really wanted, Dan, to talk about radical empiricism, too, and the whole question of like, how we actually know anything. And get into all that William James stuff. So you'll have to come back another day, and we can we can open up Every that hood. Time. Thanks very much to Josh Nilea. We could not have done this without him. Uh, Patricia Churchland, uh, great to have you on the show. The new book is called Touching a Nerve: The Self as Brain. Thanks to Neil Donald Walsh, uh, author of the uh, of twenty two books apparently, including the New York Times bestselling Conversations with God. Dan Lloyd, we wouldn't do this without uh, him. Subjective Time: The Philosophy, Psychology, and Neuroscience of Temporality is his latest published work so little time got to know before I go all right Georgia I think you're so cute because the chemicals in my brain are translating to thinking you're so cute you're so cute. You're so cute. Oh, you're so cute. All right, I'm taking you, Georgia. Come on. Come back with my baby.